Listener Production. Do you know someone who's been swayed by internet conspiracies? Which one is it? Is it misinformation about the vaccine, other COVID conspiracies, 5G, flu ride? Was it QAnon, far-right groups, or subversive internet forums like 4chan, 8chan, or 8kun? If you know someone who's gone down one of these rabbit holes, how have you dealt with it? In this briefing, we're going to learn more about what ties these different internet conspiracy groups together. We'll also talk about how dangerous it's becoming and what, if anything, we can do about it. Those two movements of wellness and the pro-Trump far right, they merged like they had fusion paranoia and started to affirm and reaffirm one another's sort of tenets of belief. Fusion paranoia. It's the frightening cluster of online conspiracies. That is today's briefing. It is Monday, the 6th of December. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blowers for today's headlines. The Queensland Premier is set to announce today when borders will finally reopen to the rest of the country as the state prepares to hit 80% double-dosed within days. Yeah, this is a really exciting development. Australia's third most populous state finally opening those borders. Um, Anastasia Palaszczuk had initially said it would be December 17, but this 80% milestones come quicker than expected, Katrina. Yeah, it's uh, going to be hit either tomorrow or the next day, which means the state could open up even sooner. The Premier's going to crunch the numbers this morning. Such good news for anyone who's got relatives in Queensland. Mm. Um, It's been a long, long few months. Uh, We're now called Fortress Queensland up here for a good reason. What do you think she's going to say today? What's your prediction? I'm hoping that it is going to be this week. I know that they've been in high-level talks for weeks and weeks now. The police and health authorities have been really cagey with the information that they've Mm. given to the media. We've been asking them every single day what the new border requirements are going to be. So hopefully we're going to have a huge announcement on all of those things today. Okay, so this comes as we get more cases of Omicron, but not that many, 18 across the country, 15 of them over the border in New South Wales. Still, state leaders in New South Wales Victoria and Queensland, by the sounds of it, are still promising to keep borders open for Christmas. We will not be pursuing a uh, Omicron zero here. That we don't think makes any sense. You know, I was uh, texting back and forth uh, with Dominic Perrottet yesterday. We're very confident that, that we can keep our rules the same. That's the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, speaking there. Tom, I think the great news so far is, you know, 15 Omicron cases in New South Wales, but none of them have required hospital treatment so far. Yeah, that's the great news about Omicron so far, that it's not doing any more damage to people, killing them or sending them to hospital. Yeah, so I think that's why the New South Wales Premier and the Victorian Premier are so confident that they can keep things open. And Australian kids are one step closer to being vaccinated after the Therapeutic Goods Administration approved the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. Yeah, so January 10 is the date when kids can uh, start getting that first jab. Uh, the government and medical experts are now waiting for advice from the expert vaccine panel, ATAGI. What ATAGI's got to do is work out when it should be given, how it should be given and to whom it should be given. And those are really important questions to make sure that the uh, vaccine program delivery saves kids from COVID and doesn't cause any harm. That's Dr Omar Korshid from the Australian Medical Association. Health authorities are also considering um, Moderna for children. So I think this will ease the mind of a lot of parents um, as kids head back to school next year. 
Voters are tipping Labor to win the next federal election after the party used an unofficial campaign launch to make new promises on education over the weekend. Yeah, so in today's news poll, 47% of voters said they believed Labor would form government next year after the election, while 37 thought the coalition would win. So 47 to 37. Now that sounds bad, but it was actually worst before the last election and the coalition still came home to win. Yeah, it's kind of that underdog factor where people rally behind the people they don't think are going to win, at least in those initial stages. Uh, yesterday, I've got to say, felt a bit like the unofficial start of the election campaign. Uh, Labor leader Anthony Albanese hosting a campaign rally style event in inner Western Sydney. He promised $1.2 billion to create 65,000 new university and TAFE places. So a real core kind of Labor issue there. Nice, safe one to begin with, Tom. Education has always been a real pillar for Labor. Yeah, and part of that was making um, 400,000 TAFE places free in sectors hardest hit by COVID. Instead of driving wages down, Labor will train Australians up. We will revive a university sector that this government has willfully and wantonly smashed. So Labor also announced their climate change policy on Friday, matching the government's net zero by 2050 commitment, but a higher 2030 target at 43% compared to the coalition's 26 to 28%. Yeah, so we've been waiting for quite a while to see what Labor would do here. They had a more ambitious policy at the last election and they kind of got slammed for that. So this time they've gone out ahead of the coalition, but not as far. Unlike the coalition, their plan also includes a mechanism to cap the emissions of the most carbon intensive companies, whereas the coalition's plan relies solely on technological advancements. And while Albo was in his heartland of inner western Sydney yesterday, the PM was at the heart of motor racing at Mount Panorama. Uh, he even took a ride around the Bathurst track with Scafey. Yeah, and while he was at it, he criticised Albo for looking um, too inner city. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty good place to do that. He knows his crowd. Now, if you're wondering who won the Bathurst 1000 yesterday, it wasn't the echidna who slowed down the race for a few laps. <laughs> That's the luckiest echidna in the universe. <laughs> yeah, well, they have a bit of wildlife there, so they're pretty used to kind of keeping an eye on the track. Um, it was Chaz Mostert who came home from behind to win his second Bathurst 1000 yesterday. It was a pretty tough race. When we did that tyre, I thought um, it was going to be a tough slog, but credit to the guys, this car has been speedy all weekend. And the death toll from the volcano in Indonesia has risen to 14 as authorities continue searching for survivors. Yeah, so 11 villages were blanketed with ash and thick mud just swallowing up homes and cars. More than 50 people were injured after the eruption on the island of Java rained down hot ash and mud on Saturday. Yeah, rescue teams have had to dig through homes buried up to their rooftops in ash. Um, Some of the photos of this are just crazy. This volcano is over three and a half thousand metres high, so it's massive. Um, I've travelled through this part of East Java. The mountains there and the landscape is incredible, Um, Mm. but there's villages everywhere. It's so densely populated, Java, and it's not far from some big cities we know almost nothing about, like Surabaya and Malang. This is a part of life there, but it's still absolutely devastating. All right, we're talking online conspiracies in a moment. Jan Fran will join us. Katrina will catch you tomorrow. Jan Fran, I think the interview we're about to do goes to the heart of one of the 
most interesting and kind of challenging issues we're facing right now, internet misinformation and this rise of conspiratorial thinking online. Yeah, and I think it's something that we can probably all relate to on a personal level because we either know someone or know someone who knows someone who's gone down an internet rabbit hole, has fallen for a conspiracy theory, and we can't get them back. Often once it's one, and it might be just some legitimate questions about the vaccine that then spiral into misinformation, then that same kind of thinking often draws them into other internet conspiracy theories. Yeah, and that's part of the research that Van Badham, who is a journalist and a playwright, has done. She's compiled it all into a very interesting book called QAnon and On. And she joins us now. So we've just had our heads in your book and now they are spinning. You were kind of an obvious target for a lot of right-wing trolls. You're a proud feminist and you have a public profile and that's probably all it takes. But they obviously have come after you with some very abusive messages. But instead of kind of blocking, unfollowing, disappearing from the whole thing, you sort of took a very different approach, which was to investigate it. Tell us how you went about that and what you found. The whole experience of trolling since I started working for The Guardian in 2013 has been really confronting for me. Like, I'm a theatre person. Hmm. I had an accidental media career. I got scouted by The Guardian. They said, we'd be interested in you writing for us. And I didn't really understand what that meant. And of course, when I started publishing, all this hate appeared on my timelines, my social media channels. And for many years, I didn't know how to deal with it because in the theatre, like all criticism is constructive. And my partner said to me once, it's like, these guys are not writing theatre reviews. You know, they don't want your work to get better. They want you to die. So I've always had this sort of quite stunned engagement with the culture of trolling and hate. But over the years, I became really curious as to what motivated it, like what would make somebody send a death threat to a stranger, what would make somebody convinced that some kind of harmless theatre feminist was this great evil and, and worthy of this scorn. So I've been following these internet phenomenon for some time and got really interested in the QAnon thing because a few years ago, these death threats started appearing on my timeline that had this quite apocalyptic language, something that sounded almost religious. And it happened more than once. I kept finding these accounts that had these weird allusions to this prophet called Q. So I think I was probably across the beginning of this movement a little earlier than <laughs> than <laughs> blessed normal people. And I started asking sort of questions about it and following American journalists who had started writing about it as well. There was some particularly good analysis from people like Adrian LaFrance at The Atlantic. And then with my social media followings, I started getting inquiries from just random people going, I think my brother's in a cult. I think my cousin has fallen into something on the internet. I'm terrified he's turning into a Nazi. What do I do? So just to kind of understand your process here, when you say that you went undercover. I'm just imagining you on the internet 23 out of 24 hours of the day talking to all sorts of people who are QAnon followers, communicating with people that you wouldn't normally communicate with. Was that generally how you got a lot of the information in this book? Yeah, well, I befriended them. My alternative personas have a bunch of QAnon pals and, you know, we check in about our lives and and the whole thing. Like I replicated the kind of conversations I was having in my real life on Facebook in the form of QAnon believers and posing as a QAnon person. So that's how I sort of got in and got an understanding of the dominant tenets of 
belief and a sense of the community and who was attracted to this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've been hanging out with everybody's tinfoil hat wearing uncle for a year. And let me tell you, (laughs) if you think Christmas is difficult, oh man. You said a a dominant underlying sort of collection of beliefs. And that's, that's kind of the really interesting part of this for me, because when you went back to sort of unpack where QAnon came from, you, you went really deep. You know, you talked about Gamergate, which was an abusive, misogynistic movement. Then you talked about the rise of Breitbart, 4chan, 8chan, 8kun. You went into the dark corners of Reddit, Pizzagate. There were so many bizarre threads that seemed to have developed this broader worldview or online culture of conspiracy that is exemplified in QAnon, but also seems now to be reaching much more broadly into areas like, you know, the anti-vax movement. There's a term for it, which I use in the book called fusion paranoia, Mm. where conspiracy communities that seem to have quite different beliefs, like anti-vaxxers in Australia typically are from hippie communities and they are associated with the wellness community and the far extremist end of clean eating and paleo. That's typically who anti-vaxxers are. But when the sort of QAnon people and these far-right conspiracy communities started following the cues of American propaganda, deciding that the vaccine was government overreach and a totalitarian conspiracy to keep everyone in chains, those two movements of wellness and the pro-Trump far-right, they merged like they had fusion paranoia and started to affirm and reaffirm one another's sort of tenets of belief. One of the things that happened to me during writing the book was that I was in these communities and I'd had a sort of sense that the book would be a personal journey about these individuals that I encountered and what attracted them towards conspiracy theories. And realistically, I didn't find characters who were that interesting. Like I have 4,000 friends on Facebook who I have met through this community, none of whom have twigged that I am not actually a real person in this one particular account. And there was just an absolutely terrifying sameness to the people who I encountered and this sort of pity, frustration and rage that was being channeled into this willful belief in false things. So a really good example is when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. Remember Mm, when the boat got stuck in the Suez Canal? Yeah, that big massive tanker that couldn't turn around, yep. Everybody was like, wow, that's massively inconvenient. I will never get a PlayStation 5 now. Hmm. In these Telegram groups I'm in, this was a boat full of containers that contain kidnapped children who were going to be tortured by elites led by Hillary Clinton under the streets of major capital cities throughout the world. And plucky pro-Trump heroes had stopped that boat to try and get these children who were like deep frozen in containers rescued. And this was the entire discourse in these channels I was in about that boat. See, what you're saying sort of partly terrifies me, but the other half of me just wants to go, you know what, if these people want to believe that, that's fine. Let's just dig ignore them. You're saying, though, that the consequences of ignoring them might be too high. Yeah, well, they're getting radicalised towards violence and that's a problem. I mean, this is the thing. When I started this project, I was like, this is nutty. Like, this is just bonkers. And it was sort of funny. Like, yeah, of course Hillary Clinton is torturing children under pizza restaurants in Washington. Normal, you know, kind of thing. But the thing is that it's not just a funny story on the internet or some kind of wild tale or paranoia. These people are genuinely being amped up by propaganda to commit acts of terrorism. Where do you think this is really going to go? Like, obviously, those are the gravest fears that it does turn to these potential 
violent or other kinds of terror attacks. But then on, on the other hand, I keep thinking that, you know, even on the vaccine question, that in some states we're over 90% double dose. So in some sense, it's a relatively small part of our population. So I'm trying to get a sense of the real proportionality of this danger. Well, we instituted all kinds of counterterrorism policy and measures in this country on the basis of a very, very small population of people who are pursuing radical violent agendas in the wake of September 11. So we devoted enormous amounts of resources as a society under the pretext of keeping ourselves safe to a tiny movement because we recognised there was a threat of violence that would be disruptive in chaos. Well, ASIO are talking about 40% of their resources on far right now, aren't they? Well, this is the thing. They have to. It's actually overdue. I mean, there was enormous reluctance to admit that there was a far-right problem that was being fermented on the internet. The real threat is a phenomenon they call stochastic terrorism. And stochastic terrorism is when rather than having sort of cells and groups and an umbrella structure that convinces people to get convict acts of terrorism, if you just pump enough propaganda towards the right communities, and they use the same sort of niche marketing techniques to promote propaganda as companies use to sell your cute jumper on Instagram. All of that Facebook data and Instagram data is being used by bad faith political actors to find a community of people to amp up with propaganda. And then they can be relied upon to go out to the community randomly and commit acts of terror. I mean, it's already happening. There is a body count associated with QAnon. In Mm. Germany, there were murders. In the United States, there have been murders and disruption, people seizing bridges, arming themselves and taking over buildings, bomb threats that have been phoned into various events. And that kind of chaos is here. At the core of this, you sort of outlined this concept of fusion paranoia, which sort of suggests that There's a lot of fear at the heart of this and that often galvanizes human beings and and always have, but it's in a new context. It's in the age of information, the internet, social media, which we're still living the experiment of. Do you have any ideas of how we solve this problem you've outlined? It's a complex problem. We have never been here before. Mm. We have never had a propaganda forum like the internet, which can so isolate and de-socialise people. And of course, that's what happens when people fall down the rabbit hole and other people in their lives withdraw from them. It compounds the effect. They just start consuming propaganda and hanging out with other people who believe it all the time. And that's the real danger because that is a radicalisation process. We have to, unfortunately, start devoting counter-terrorism resources towards these movements because they are dangerous and they pose an active threat to the community and certainly to our political leadership and that's a problem and we need to confront it with full force and honesty. That was Van Badham talking about the work she's done for her book QAnon and On. It's pretty dark stuff and just so clear that the pandemic is the absolute perfect storm for this problem that was already building before it because it's brought in a a whole new raft of conspiracy theories around the vaccine and also the strict measures that governments had to introduce to deal with the pandemic and then loads of time at home on the internet. Yeah, that's not a Venn diagram that you want to be in the middle of. But we're all in it. Here we are. Tomorrow on The Briefing, online trolls inflaming tensions in the Northern Territory. Listener.